Thank you, our Father, for the privilege of gathering together and even for singing songs, reading scriptures that remind us of the truthfulness of who you are, the truthfulness of your revelation to us, and the expectation of what your revealed word will work in us to transform us into the image of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. And isn't that remarkable? For we who were born into original sin and have verified our sinfulness through our own sinful actions have not only been saved from the penalty of our sin, saved from the power of sin, but we have been saved to righteousness. So that it is not trite to say that we might look like our Savior. That we might conduct ourselves like the Savior. Albeit we understand that we do not act in perfection as He did. But we do act in such a way that you can find pleasure in what we do, for it corresponds to the one who saved us. Thank you, Father, that we are no longer trapped by our sin, but we are freed to righteousness. And we pray, our Father, as we come to this passage thinking about freedom and liberty, that we might think about it the way you think about it. And that it would not only be for our own personal benefit, but that it would be for the benefit and joy of the entire church body. And so would you guide us in understanding what you have to say to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul, and in so giving understanding that you will likewise give transformation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I began praying for this church before I ever even knew that this church existed. Before I even knew of its name, I was praying for it. I was in seminary and thinking about going into the pastorate, planning for it, praying for it, desiring it, and knowing that I would be really young. I ran into an old friend who was at the church uh, when I came earlier this week, and he said, yeah, when you came, you were green behind the ears and pretty wet. And he kind of looked around the side of my head. He said, it looks pretty crusty now. <laughs> Indeed. But as I came, I realized that I needed some help, and I needed something, particularly from Christ, as I came to lead and shepherd and be part of this flock. And... I didn't know anything about the church, but I knew some things that God would have as priorities for this church. And so I began praying for it. And I particularly prayed for two things. I prayed for the peacefulness of the church. And I prayed for the unity of the church. I prayed for particularly the unity. And peace relates to unity, obviously. Because of the overwhelming emphasis in the New Testament, especially about the unity of the church body and what God would desire us to be as one 
solitary body for the person of Christ. Listen to just a few passages. Romans 12, just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So be devoted to one another in brotherly love, and give preference to one another in honor. 1 Corinthians 12, even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, we're made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Galatians 3, all of you who are baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them in one body to Christ through the cross, to God through the cross. By it, having put to death the enmity, For through Him we have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Ephesians 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And there are Many more. It's just overwhelming that God wants us to know you are one. Act like one. And and those reminders of the priority of our unity are balanced as well by many warnings against disunity, against factions, against argumentation and against conflicts. And those also abound in the New Testament. As we make our way into Romans chapter 15, we've spent several weeks in Romans 14 thinking about liberty and and the fact that God has released us from obligations, a certain set of obligations, some of which he, he has identified in Romans 14 in particular, the aspects that relate to how we worship, when we worship, and what we will eat, and how we will eat. And... Um, We don't think often about the issue of liberty, but it has been compelling to me that as I think about the Apostle Paul and how he is applying the work of the gospel. So 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters of Romans, he has unfolded what the gospel is. And then starting in chapter 12, he's talking about the implications of that gospel. How does it work out into our lives? And he's given us... Lots of means by which it works into our lives. And then in chapter 14, it's like he hits the brakes, slams the brakes and says, stop. 
And let's think about the gospel, particularly as it relates to the issue of liberty and freedom to be freed from the bondage of the law and what the implications are for your functioning in the body of Christ. It is by far the, the, the most extensive implication or application of the truth of the gospel that he makes in chapters 12 to 15. So liberty is no small issue. He would have us to think deeply and long and hard about issues of liberty and what he is going to do in chapter 15 at the beginning is he's going to he's going to start to make a bridge and I'll unpack that for you in just a minute. He's going to start to bridge to another topic. But before he does that, he's he's got one or two last things to say about freedom. And we'll continue to put it under the heading of what we have talked about previously in freedom about freedom, and that is use your individual freedoms as a means of preserving the corporate unity of the body. Most of chapter 14 has been about the first part of that statement. How are you going to use your personal freedoms? What are those personal freedoms and how are they manifested? What are the goals of that freedom? And then at the end of chapter 14 and now into chapter 15, he is not just dogmatic, as one preacher said, he is bulldogmatic about preserving unity in the exercise of our freedoms. Use your individual freedom as a means of preserving the corporate unity of the body. Here he is particularly talking about how we can be liberated and use that liberty to tie ourselves together so that we are more bonded to one another. In chapter 14, we talked about the goal of our corporate unity. Here, Paul will give us, in these six verses, five practices to cultivate personal and corporate unity in the body. Five practices to cultivate corporate unity in the body. Now, I noted just a moment ago that Paul is making a transition. Notice chapter 15, first verse. First word in the first verse, he says now. That's a conjunction. You can't really see it here. It, it can sometimes be translated as and, sometimes but. It's a mild form of contrastive. And here he's using it to start to tr- slide into a new topic related to the previous topic. But it's, it's still connected. And we know it's connected because what he talks about now, he says we who are strong. So he's still talking to those who are strong. So at the end of chapter 14, he was giving some particular instruction to those who were strong, to those who had confidence to use their liberty, to, to exercise the freedoms, to, to not keep the feast days under the Old Testament covenant, to, to be able to, to eat a variety of kinds of foods and not be under the bondage of the law as it related to eating of foods. They're confident about that. And he's talking to them. You have a particular role, a particular responsibility. And notice that he's also not just talking to the strong, but he's also thinking about their relationship to those who are weak. He says, bear the weaknesses of those without strength. So he's still talking about the strong and the weak. What's interesting is he doesn't just say the weak here. Notice he says those without strength. They're they're powerless. They they don't have confidence. And I think he's using that term without strength, not just to contrast it with strength, but he's using it particularly to emphasize they don't have confidence. And we've said all along that's 
That's the reality of the weak person. He just doesn't have confidence that he's been liberated from the law. And, and he uses this term here to emphasize that. And so Paul is introducing this new topic, but still tying it to the previous one. So he says, now, now we're moving into a, another idea. So in these verses, verses 1 to 6, he's going to emphasize our unity. We're bonded together. How are we going to keep that? If one is exercising one liberty and another is exercising another liberty, how do we stay unified so we don't become fractured and factious? Then in verses 7 to 13, he's going to take that idea and he's going to apply it particularly to Jew and Gentile. So there's a place where there often was conflict, right, between Jew and Gentile. Certainly apart from Christ there was conflict, but even as... As Jew and Gentile came together in Christ, in the church, there was a propensity for being factious. And so he's going to talk about the unity as it relates to Jew and Gentile. And then in verses 14 and following, particularly the last half of the chapter, he's going to talk about the implications of the gospel going out from our freedom, especially to the Gentiles. And how do we think about missions and evangelism in the culture? So that's where we're going in chapter 15. In these verses, again, we're talking about unity. How do we cultivate unity? First principle, cultivate unity by carrying the weaknesses of the weak. By carrying the weaknesses of the weak. Now, I've already observed that he's still talking about strength and weakness. He's talking about the liberty issues. Some have confidence, some don't have confidence. And notice that as he did in 4.14, here he overtly identifies himself as one who is strong. Notice he says, we who are strong. And so Paul places himself in that camp. And you say, well, yeah, Terry, duh. I mean, he's an apostle. Would you expect anything less? But think about the apostle Paul, who came out of Judaism. And not just out of Judaism, but he came out as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a zealot to the maximum degree. If if there was an Israelite in Israel, it's the Apostle Paul. This This is the one who carried the banner well for Israelite nationalism. And so Paul saying that he is among those who are strong, that has confidence that we've been liberated from the bondage of the law and we have freedom to carry out some things that previously we didn't have freedom to do, is somewhat surprising, somewhat ironic, and demonstrates just the magnitude of the freedom we have. If the apostles been freed, oh, brothers, we, we are free indeed. Now, along with that, He's also reminding us that when we are strong, and and, and most people will be strong. Most Most people will understand it's okay to eat pork. It's okay to go to the grocery store and you can walk through the pork section. You can buy a pork tenderloin. You can buy bacon. You can buy shellfish. You can eat that and it's okay and it's acceptable. Most of us are going to understand that. Most of us are going to be okay with that. But even understanding that, the apostle says we have an obligation and a duty. Notice what he says. We who are strong ought 
to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. We have an obligation to minister to the weak. They've remained unconvinced. This goes back to 14.2, right? One person has faith that he may eat all things. That's the strong. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who is weak has no confidence that he's been liberated from the law and he wants to make sure that he's going to keep the law so he won't eat anything that, that might be tainted in any way by anything that's off limits. Only vegetables. He understands he can't eat some meats. He can't eat some fish. He's just so concerned that he not eat anything inappropriately that he eats only vegetables. That's the one that Apostle Paul is talking about. We have an obligation to them. We have a duty to them. And while the Apostle Paul says we have a duty to them, it's not just the Apostle Paul that's speaking. But as Paul is writing... As we understand the transmission of Scripture, we understand that he is writing under the authority of God. And so when Paul says, we ought to bear, it's not just Paul's idea. This is God's idea. This is an obligation not to the Apostle Paul. This is not an obligation to the weak, though it is. This is ultimately an obligation to God. This is my duty before the Lord. This is my act of worship to the Lord. And my obligation is particularly to bear their weaknesses. Now, that idea of bearing their weaknesses um, includes an idea of tolerating, of enduring, um, persisting with them, of being patient with the weaknesses. But it's also something that is far more than that. In fact, Paul uses that similar, same word in a similar context in chapter 11 as he talks about the relationship between Gentiles and Jews and how Gentiles have been grafted into the promises of the Jews. And so he says, we've been grafted in to the rich root of the olive tree, Romans 11, 17, then verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the the root supports you. That word support, is the word here for tolerate or bear. It's to hold up. It's not just that I'm tolerating. It's that I'm coming alongside and I'm helping and I'm supporting and I'm holding up those who are weak so that they can carry out their spiritual duties before the Lord the way their conscience dictates them to do it. So to bear weaknesses means that we are not critical, we're not condescending, we are respectful, we are kind, we are understanding, we are gracious in our conduct, in our words with them. Now, that doesn't mean that as we are bearing with them, that we have to do everything that the weak does. We don't have to accommodate ourselves to everything that they do. If they can look at our example and they're not led into sin, then brothers, then enjoy the liberty you have. You don't need to subject yourself to what they're doing. But it does mean that you are sympathetic to their decisions. You might say something like, well, that's interesting that you're doing that. What what has compelled you to to make that decision about your lifestyle? And, and how is it that that 
helps you. Again, not in a condescending way, but just just out of curiosity, out of out of care and love for the brother. How are you walking with Christ and how does that discipline help you? Or you might ask them, hey, have you ever thought about our relationship to the law? Has anyone ever explained to you what the scriptures teach about the law and how we relate to it? Could I take some time today or maybe in the next week or two and just kind of unfold for you what the scriptures have to say about our relationship to the law? Not compelling them to do what you do, but showing them from the word of God what the scriptures have to say about it. Everything we do, we want to do in accordance with 1423, right? He who doubts is condemned if he eats, but if it is eating is not from, if, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. We want to help them eat and drink from faith, a belief that they have a right to do what they're doing, and they're not going against their conscience. And so we are going to tolerate them. Endure, hold up what they're doing. And we are not going to say, I have a right to eat bacon. And pork ribs are on sale at Kroger right now. And I am going to get some and I am going to grill to the glory of God. And brothers, if his conscience tells him he can't do that, but he sees you do it, and he copies you, then you've led him to sin. And we're not going to do that. And I I don't think you do. Paul says there's something else going on here, right? Notice the end of verse verse 1, chapter 15. We bear them because we do not want to just please God ourselves it's not about me isn't that interesting even in the first century in rome there must have been something like a, a, there must have been a saying something like be sure to look out for number one it almost sounds 21st century-ish doesn't it myself has been a battle <laughs> From Genesis 3 forward, hasn't it? And Paul reminds us that as we think about our liberties, my liberty is not about me. My liberty is not so that I can please myself. The exercise of my liberty is so that I can help others to find pleasure in God. Now, the apostle is not saying... Listen, I just want you to know, if you have come to trust in Jesus Christ, I've just led you into the most miserable lifestyle ever. There will never be another moment of pleasure for you. There's only dour and sourpuss, and never another smile shall cross your lips. He's not saying that. But he is saying, there's a pleasure that goes way beyond self-indulgence. I don't live just for myself. I live for another. My goal is to live for Christ. This is is 2 Corinthians 5.9. Our goal is to be pleasing to Him. Our goal, whether at home, here on earth, or absent, at home in heaven, is to be pleasing to Him. That's our goal. 
That's going to be our goal for all of eternity in heaven, to please Him and to live for His glory. And that's not going to be a new goal. That is the goal today, to live for Him, to live for Christ's pleasure. And the pleasure of Christ is, is unmasked in all of our relationships. So I find pleasure in Christ and I learn to live for Christ's pleasure when I crucify the self and live for my wife's pleasure. When I live for my children's pleasure, when I live for the pleasure of seeing unbelievers come to know Jesus Christ, it is the mark of the believer that he lives not a self-indulgent life, but a Christ-indulgent life that leads to others finding pleasure in Christ. Love what John Piper says in his book, Desiring God. Biblical self-denial means... Deny yourself the lesser joys so that you don't lose the big ones. Which is the same as saying, really pursue joy. Don't settle for anything less than full and lasting joy. And in this context, that means if you really want to be joyful then make your decisions about what you're doing in relation to liberty to care first for the people around you and then secondly for your own pleasure. Make your decisions about how you will promote the unity of the body through the exercise of your liberties. Second principle. Cultivate unity by carrying carrying the weaknesses of the weak. Secondly, cultivate unity by working for the pleasure of others. He has said it negatively in verse 1, don't just please yourself. He says it positively in verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor. So I think here the apostle is still continuing to talk to those who are strong. Some have conjectured, wondered, is Paul broadening it out in verse 2, and he's talking both strong and weak. So when he says each of us, is he now broadened it and said, I'm talking now to both strong and weak. And I think, I think he's still talking just to the strong or primarily to the strong because, because he has taken the negative in verse 1 and turned it into a positive in verse 2. And then he's, um, he's giving parallel instruction in verse 2 that fits with the back half of chapter 14 verses 13 and following about instruction to the strong. So I think he's still continuing to talk to the strong. So you are strong. You have this liberty. You who have this freedom. Make sure that you're living to please your neighbor. Your primary duty in the context of the church body is to please your neighbor. To live for your neighbor's pleasure. How do you do that? The apostle identifies two ways in this verse. Each of us does to please his neighbor. How, Paul? For his good. That is, for his spiritual benefit. So we, as we're making decisions, need to be simply asking the question, is this good for you? Will this be a benefit to you? And we need to honestly just just ask that question on a regular basis. Is this this going to help my brother? Is this going to care for him? We might might ask a brother. Several of you 
um, used to do this was I was trying to lose some weight and I'd say, hey, let's go to lunch. And you'd say, hey, I don't want to I don't want to tank your diet. Where would be good for you to go to lunch so that you can maintain your your discipline of what you will eat? That was a blessing. That was a help. We might ask someone, how, how can I help you? How can I help you study the word of God? How can I how can I unfold this book so that you will know what this means, particularly as it relates to law and freedom? So it's it's always it's always good to ask the question. How can I help another? But but Paul's not just talking about how can you help another generally? He's asking how can how can you do something that is good for him particularly as it relates to liberty to fit decisions? So we need to ask this question. What will benefit my brother's obedience to Christ and submission to his conscience? Will what I eat help my brother worship Christ and follow him more fully and more completely? And this is, in fact... Very similar to what the Apostle Paul himself does in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 23, he quotes something that is said often in the Corinthian church. Perhaps they had written this to him in a letter. All things are lawful. That's what the Corinthians said. Everything is lawful, Paul. We can do anything we want. Ah, but Paul says, but not all things are profitable. And then he again quotes them. All things are lawful. Ah, Paul says, but not all things edify. That's it's a word we're going to see in just a moment in verse 2 of, first, of Romans 15. So then he says in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 10, Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. I want to constantly be asking, the decisions I'm making as it relates to the law, is this good for the people around me? Am I, am I more concerned about how it will benefit them or benefit me? So we please our neighbors by doing things for his good. And then he gives us a second way to please our neighbor, to do the things that are for his edification. That's the same root word that we saw last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the the word edification or the word building up, it's a construction term. And Paul is the only New Testament writer that uses it to relate to the spiritual life. And he, and he says the spiritual life, as we think about it in the context of the body, is, is like a big construction project. And we're mutually coming alongside each other and helping each other build each other up, construct our spiritual lives together. And so Paul says... I'm going to please my neighbor when I do something that will build him up, not raise and destroy him. No teardown projects here. Now, as, as I think about construction projects at home, I'm really good at tear down. I'm not so good at build up. And Paul says, as we think about spiritual life, we need to be terrible at build down or tear down and great at build up. That's that's our focus. It's virtually identical to what he says in 1419, isn't it? So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. I will give up my liberty if it will benefit you and keep you from sinning. When we do that, we're working for the pleasure of others. 
There's a third way to cultivate unity. It's given to us in verse 3. Cultivate unity by following the example of Christ. Cultivate unity by following the example of Christ. The supreme example of one who did not live for his own pleasure, but lived to build up others is Jesus Christ. And it's to him that Paul points in verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. In other words, if there was anyone who had a right to please himself, it was Christ. He had all the rights and privileges of heaven. That's what we read in Philippians chapter 2 earlier. He had all the authority of heaven, all the glory of heaven, and he set it aside so that he might please others and bring others into pleasure in him. What's interesting, though, is how Paul constructs this. He doesn't say each of us is to please his own neighbor for his own good to his edification. And look at the example of Christ. But he says, verse 3, for even Christ. In other words, Christ is not not just the example, and he is an example, but he is the reason that we lay aside our own privileges and our own desires and our own liberties in order to please other people. For provides the reason. Because. Because if Christ did that, all the more should we do it. You know, what's also notable is this book is all about the gospel, right? So Paul, we're going to see this in a few weeks, Paul is writing to the Romans. He wants to go westward from Rome into Spain, and he's wanting Rome to serve as his base of operation as he makes that westward advance of the gospel in missions. And so he's writing to them to to affirm that he's orthodox in his gospel. This is no new gospel. It's a gospel that's rooted in the Old Testament. Sixty or sixty-one times he quotes from the Old Testament to affirm this is not a new gospel. I'm in the long tradition of what the gospel has always been understood to be. And so you can trust me as I go westward. And so this whole book is about the orthodoxy of the gospel, about sin, salvation, sanctification, And God's working in that sovereign process. And this is the first time in the book that Paul has said, look to the example of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Now, he's talked about Christ tremendously in this book. But this is the first time he says, Christ is our example. And that gives a weightiness here to say, This is no small issue, this issue of liberty. And we need to think carefully and precisely about it. I want you to notice something else that's significant. Paul could have said something like, remember in Luke chapter 2, when Christ came from heaven to earth and, and took on manhood? Remember when Christ died on the cross and absorbed as infinite God the weight of our sin? And absolved us of our guilt and satisfied the wrath of God against our sin. Remember when Christ did those things? He doesn't do that. He goes to the example of Christ in the Old Testament. So he validates what Christ did from the Old Testament. 
In other words, he's saying Christ not only acted this way in the Gospels, but this is the very way that the Old Testament prophesied that that this is the way the Messiah would live and be and redeem his people. This is also a reminder of Paul's great delight and love for the word of God. As one commentator says, for the Apostle Paul, the Bible ends all argument. The Bible makes the final and ultimate argument for the Apostle Paul. Which means that we, that we likewise should, all, should regularly be asking not, what do I want to do? But we should regularly be asking, what does the Word of God have to say? And I thank God that you do that. That, that is the tenor of this place. That is the sound that emanates from this church body. And, and, it, and it follows what Paul says. As it is written, that's the only thing I'm interested in. What, is, what does the Bible have to say about this topic? So where does he go? He goes to Psalm 69. Keep your finger here in Romans chapter 15 and go to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a Davidic psalm. David, you'll remember, is the man to whom the promise was made that he would not only be a king over Israel, but that there would be one that would emanate from him, that would follow after him, that would rule eternally on his throne. So the Messiah would come from David. In Psalm 69, David is lamenting his own suffering, and the fact that others have persecuted him, have harmed him. It it starts in the very beginning. Verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk deep into mire. There's no foothold. I've come into deep waters. A flood overwhelms me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for God. But this is not just generic suffering. Notice verse 4. For those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Thousands upon thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people are, are oppressing me and against me. And they're weighing on me and I am overwhelmed. And it's not just, it's not just people in general. Who are hating him? Notice verse 8. I've become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. It's my own family that hate me. It's my own family that are harming me. And so he says in verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It's not just that they hate me. It's that they hate you, and because they hate you, they are pouring out their anger against you on me. And that is what Paul says, the very thing that Christ, the one who would follow after David as the eternal king and sit on his eternal throne, would also experience. He was reproached by those who reproached God. And so Paul's point is really simple. Christ willingly endured 
that wrath from people so that he might affect transformation and salvation for us. He lived not for his own pleasure and avoiding anger, reproach, hatred. He was willing to endure it in order for others to find pleasure in God. Christ was concerned about corporate unity. Christ was concerned about bringing people together as a corporate body. He was not concerned about his own personal rights and his own personal desires. That's why he left heaven. He left heaven to work for our pleasure. And Paul says, because Christ did that, we similarly ought to do that for one another. Cultivate unity by following the example of Christ. Fourth, cultivate unity by remembering the hope of Scripture. 4, verse 4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction as Paul quotes Psalm 69, he then, it's, it's kind of like he has this thought go through his head. I need to remind them what the Old Testament scriptures are there to accomplish. And what they are there to accomplish, the things that were written earlier, that's the Old Testament, they were written for our instruction. They're written to guide us, to inform us, to direct us. Everything that was written earlier, was written to instruct us. All the pages of this book are beneficial and helpful to you. And Paul says, while it's all helpful, there is a particular way that it is helpful as we think about liberty and unity and the relationship of those two in the body of Christ. So that, middle of verse 4, through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So as we read the Old Testament, and we see those who have persevered in Christ, and as we read of the encouragement or the exhortation that comes from the Word of God to, to instruct us, that we find the hope and confidence of the Scriptures. We get hope. We get hope not just that, well, maybe something nice will happen. No, we get hope that we know with certainty that God will accomplish everything that He has intended to accomplish in us and through us. We read the Scriptures and we read about how the Old Testament saints persevered. We read the exhortation. And we think about the God who's directing those things and we say, if He could do that then, oh, He can do that now. He was trustworthy then. He is trustworthy now. And what is the thing that He is going to particularly produce? He is going to particularly produce a brotherhead of unity in heaven. And we read the Old Testament and we say, God's going to bring us together. We know He's going to bring us together 
And if he's going to bring us together then, that's, this is what we need to do now by conducting ourselves in harmony with one another now. Final way to cultivate unity, not just remember the hope of Scripture, verse 4, but finally cultivate unity by heeding the prayer of Paul. Verses 5 and 6 constitute what several commentators have called a prayer wish. It's a desire by the Apostle Paul. And while he doesn't overtly say, this is what I'm praying, it just seems benedictory. Is that a word? It sounds like a benediction. It sounds like a prayer that he's tying it all together. And four things I want you to particularly notice in this prayer, wish, desire that he has for the Romans. Now may the God who gives perseverance, if we will persevere in unity, then it is a grace gift from God. It comes from Him. He's the one who produces it. Whatever unity is in this body, it's not because any one of us accomplish it or any group within the body accomplishes it. If we are unified, it's God's grace who gives us the ability to persevere with one another. That's the first thing I want you to notice. Second phrase I want you to notice. And the, um, may he grant you to be of the same. Sameness is a commitment to being single-minded, singly devoted in our relationships. No matter how diverse we are in our opinions, no matter how diverse we are in our preferences, no matter how diverse we are in the exercise of our liberties, We are single-minded. And what's the single mind? Christ. Our focus and our attention is on Him. And everything else pales in comparison to that. We are bonded together in Christ. We have Him as our head. I'm not the head. The elders aren't the head. The home group leader isn't the head. The Sunday school teacher isn't the head. Christ alone is the head and we're tied to him we're single-minded about him third phrase i want you to notice in this prayer so that with one accord you may with one voice we have harmonious speech and conduct We're not just committed to one another, but the things we say and the things we do with one another demonstrate, I'm with you. It's it's been a joy over the years to just kind of interact and watch you you guys as as sometimes see you together as couples. And not just on Sunday morning, but maybe during the week we'll run into each other somewhere and, and just watch you interact with one another. And very often, I just I hear you say to one another, husband and wife, I love you, I love you. And Regina and I have had that same habit as well. Never a day goes by where we don't say, I love you, usually multiple times. Every once in a while, I don't know, once a week maybe, I'll see her in the kitchen. And I'll say, I love you. And she'll say, yeah, yeah, I know. And I'll say, hey, look at me. And I'll spin her around. 
and I'll grab her. Not, I mean, not hard, but, you know, just <laughs> got to be careful how you say what you say these days. I'll grab her, hold her in my arms, look me in the eyes. I love you. I am committed to you. We are one. And I want her to hear that word commitment. It's not just ooey gooey. I mean, there's, that's there, right? But I want her to hear, I'm in lockstep with you and nothing's going to drive us apart. <laughs> Some of your parents can appreciate this. There were days with the kids and I said, I don't care what the kids do. I'm yours, babe. <laughs> we're in this together. No matter what the kids do. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need with each other. To tell each other, we're together. And this world is, is attempting to drive us apart and drive us away from each other. And create schism and factions in the body. We're not doing it. We're not going there. We're together. I'm with you. And you're with me. And we've got to see this thing through. We are committed. We have one accord. We have one voice. One harmonious voice. That is designed. Fourth phrase I want you to see. To glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have one intent, one purpose. It's to glorify God. We live for Him. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. I mean, do I have preferences? Yeah. I like shrimp rack bacon. I like that I've got Saturday to go to breakfast with my wife and not have to go to temple worship. I like not having to keep all the dietary and clothing laws of the Old Testament. I mean, that's my preference. That's not ultimate, though. What's ultimate is I want to live in such a way that God is revealed in what I do. That's living for the glory of God. People look at me and say, that looks like Jesus. And I'm going to do that best when I stop living for myself and start living for you. And you will do that best when you stop living for self and start living for one another. Earlier this morning, I read a number of passages that relate to God's commitment to our unity. If you're following along as I read, you thought, yep, thought of that one. Yep, thought of that one. Yep, thought of that one. Hey, preacher, you forgot, like, the greatest passage on unity in the New Testament. That's because I was saving it. John 17, the high priestly prayer. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them so that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, 
that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's all about being tied together in unity because Christ came to do that so that God is glorified. Do we have liberty? Yes, we do. Oh, praise God for that grace. But far more, we have duty to care for one another, to maintain the harmony that Christ at the cross created us to have with one another. Father, I thank you for this word. And yeah, I would, even as we close, pray the way the Apostle Paul did and ask what he asked for us. That you would work in us by your grace to preserve our unity. And in your great kindness to us, we have, we have not just experienced unity in this body for years. We have experienced it for decades. And we are asking that you would preserve this gift of grace to us. And we understand that whatever unity we have, it's simply your kindness to us. And we ask that you would also Give us perseverance and encouragement to persist in being of the same mind. That we would continue to intentionally and purposely cultivate a unity and a harmony in this body. To look each other in the eye and say, brother, sister, I'm with you. We're together in this great venture of the spiritual life. You cannot lose me. I'm with you. And Father, would you, would you preserve that and keep us in that? And would you give us one voice, one sound by which we declare our affirmation to you and our affirmation of love to one another? And might we do it in such a way that you are glorified so that the world looks at us and says, they're different, I want that. And that it would be for our great spiritual benefit and our spiritual testimony and our evangelistic success. Father, you, you have granted us unity and you have granted us liberty. Often those things are factious. They certainly were in some of the New Testament churches. Might they not be factious here, but that they, may they drive us all the more to a commitment to a unified care in the body of Christ. It is in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.